According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Your growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again, if you would, in Proverbs chapter 16. Proverbs 16. We're approaching the end of the chapter because we're in uh, main point nine, and there's only ten points. So we've got to be close to the end. Main point nine uh, walks us through these two, these four villains in verses 27 through 30. And then uh, main point 10 is the close of the chapter, which takes us through three timeless truths in verses 20, uh, 31, 32, and 33. All right, before we get started this morning, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Ask our Father for His faithfulness once again. He's never not faithful. That's the, the blessings. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning and the truth of your word, the blessing we have to assemble together. Father, we uh, call upon your faithfulness to open the eyes of our understanding, to teach us from your truth. Uh, we're looking at some villains this morning, Father, like we did last week, and so uh, not a fun topic, but uh, we want to see it for what it is so that we can be on guard against them and we uh, don't become them ourselves. And uh, thank you for such powerful truth. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so main point nine in the outline, I failed to write down the slide number on this, so we'll just manually look for it. That's a lot of slides in this chapter. Here we are. Four villains. Four villains are portrayed and exposed by the wisdom of God. Remember, the light exposes everything, and in the light, uh, wickedness is is brought to light and it's exposed. We're told likewise not to participate with the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. And then we do that as we walk in the light. This warning echoes the parental wisdom warning given in chapter 6. We won't go back and look at that again, but in Proverbs 6 verses 12 through 15, you have parents warning their children about these same villains, the same uh, principles here of Belial and and uh, the, the, the winkers and all the things that we look at there in Proverbs 6 verses 12 through 15. So last week we looked at the first villain and he's introduced here in uh, in verse 27. Uh, translated by the New American Standard Bible as a worthless man, a worthless man. And uh, this uh, actually could start to spark further discussions. Uh, Chris and I were talking about uh, what is worth and what is worthless and what does it mean to be worthy and uh, different things there. Well, Belial is a man of worthlessness and the expression uh, of a son of a Belial and is even worse than a Belial because uh, these things intensify as they get worse and worse. So uh, the man of Belial is an ish Belial, among the worst characters portrayed anywhere in the Old Testament. And I don't want to repeat any of these things because we read them last week, some very uh, ugly, ugly chapters like in Judges 19 and Judges 20 and horrible stories there. Um, Deuteronomy 13.13 13, that uses the term. 1 Samuel chapter 2 that uses the term. Specifically, Eli's sons. Here's the high priest and his sons are Belials. They're worthless fellows. And uh, that's not a good thing. And then 1 Samuel 25, 2 Samuel chapter 20, and 1 Kings 21. 
We also have depersonalized expressions where we're just talking about the worthlessness as opposed to attached to a specific person. And uh, in messianic prophecies, interestingly enough. And so those are interesting to look at. Psalm 18 and Psalm 41 and Psalm 101 that you see the worthlessness there and when Jesus is being betrayed, for example, in Psalm 41. We also have the term Belial uh, as the Old Testament basis for the New Testament expressions uh, related to the son of perdition. The son of perdition is connected to Belial in, uh, in those applications there. So John seventeen twelve, Second Thessalonians 2, 3. And then one place where I did not list it is uh, what has Christ in common with Belial, for example? What has light in common with darkness? There's no fellowship. There's no concord. There's no. That's why we're told to come out from among them and be ye separate. So there's a Belial use there in the New Testament that uh, should have also been on the slide, but uh, failed to do that. So um, we can bring these up for you as well. And we, of course, we do our studies on. Um, Where's that? First Corinthians six, Second Corinthians six, come out from among them and be ye separate. And there it is, Second Corinthians six fifteen. I knew it was a Corinthians six. Second Corinthians six fifteen. So do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship hath light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial? What has a believer in common with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? This is such a marvelous poem. And uh, the, the lyrics, I mean the, 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 the poetry here, when you talk about partnership and fellowship and harmony and common and agreement and all of these expressions with their correlating uh, antithesis that gets highlighted there. So there's another Belial passage um, beyond the beyond the uh, son of perdition that we have with Judas Iscariot and with Antichrist. Let me also bring this up for us to look at. Even if you don't read the Hebrew, that's fine. You can at least notice the ish 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 that we have in uh, 27, 28, 29. I want to make it large enough to see it, but not... Uh, anyway, so you have, you see the ish that you have right there. And it starts verse 27, it starts verse 28, it starts verse 29. And it's kind of a handy thing that the Logos just added, I think in either 5 or 6, a very recent version of Logos, where anytime you select a word, not only does it highlight that word, but it also has a sympathetic highlighting. It has for other places where that word occurs in proximity. And so it really jumps out at you on the page that, uh, looking at your purple highlights there, that uh, you got ish, ish, ish in all those verses. So you got ish, uh, uh, the son of, wor- uh, the man of worthlessness. You got the ish, Tapukuth uh, that we're going to see this morning for the uh, perversions, and then we have Ish Hamas 
for the man of violence. And uh, we got to look at the man of violence this morning as well. So ish, ish, ish. And this is why in some commentaries they're going to talk about three villains instead of four villains. All right, I prefer to think of it as four villains, but I recognize that the villain in verse uh, 30 does not begin with an ish expression, that it, it's phrased differently in verse 30 when it says, uh, he who winks his eyes, the winker. The uh, eye winker does so to devise perverse things. And it's the same perversity we have with villain number two, the man of perversions. And so there's an eye winker in verse three. I like to keep the eye winker as a separate villain, even though it's not introduced with an ish formula like we have in 27, 28, 29. But be that as it may depending on what commentaries you're reading or, or different things there. Maybe maybe you're not reading any commentaries, that's fine. But <laughs> if uh, for those of you that like to read the commentaries and follow up on what you're learning here, uh, just be aware of the fact that uh, it's not really, uh, not really worth fighting over if there's three villains or four. We're just, you know, taking the passage as it's presented. All right, so that's Man of Belial. Moving on this morning to the Man of Perversities. Again, it's an ish expression, ish tapukoth. Ish tapukoth, and uh, anytime it's kind of interesting that this tapuka, the noun for perversion, uh, is pluralized, and it's pluralized. I think everywhere it's used in the Old Testament. Uh, I think there's, there aren't that many usages anyway. Uh, just once in Deuteronomy, and everywhere else is Proverbs. All right, and so as a term of perversion, it's really a rather poetic term, and whether it's used in in Proverbs in this way. But this is what we're going to look at this morning. A man of perversities, he follows up his strife with malicious murmuring. And what we're going to see here is that he's not content in his perversions. He's not content in his strife. He actually wants to follow up the strife. He wants to follow up the strife as verse uh, 28 here is talking about. A perverse man spreads strife. Isn't that bad enough? But then he goes on and here's where it's called a slanderer separates intimate friends. So when you're looking there at verse 28, by the way, this is where some commentaries find a fifth villain. They separate the perverse man from the slanderer. I think in, it's, a, it's a sympathetic highlighting where it's the same guy that's in, it's in view, both in the A part and the B part of the, uh, of the poetry. But a perverse man spreads strife and a slanderer separates intimate friends. And so we have the perversions, which cause strife, and then we have the slander, the uh, really the malicious murmuring. It's a, it's a whispering and gossip campaign is what it is. This malicious murmuring makes it even worse, separating intimate friends. And so uh, I think both halves of this, of this poetry here in verse 28, the A part and the B part show how uh, it goes from bad to worse. Uh, we've got to use the Word of God to and grace to overcome the, uh, the obstacles that pop up from time to time so that we don't progress from the A part of the verse to the B part of the verse. Does that make sense? So when we have strife that gets spread, how do you respond to the, how do you respond to the strife? If there's strife in a marriage, if there's strife in a family, if there's strife in a local church, if there's strife in the workplace or strife in the neighborhood, I don't care wherever the strife can pop up, how do you respond to it? Do you walk in love and, and uh, as we've been seeing in Proverbs where love and grace where you can overlook a matter and you can have forgiveness? Or are you going to respond? 
Are you going to feed that strife? Or uh, because the malicious murmuring gets going and, and it has something very real to work with, that strife is fertile ground. And you can start murmuring in, uh, in the follow-up to that strife or in the, in the aftermath of that strife. And then that slanderer, I don't like the rendering slanderer. I like, um, I like uh, malicious murmurer uh, because it's a whispering, it's a murmuring. Separates intimate friends to where, you know, in grace we could have overcome that strife. But in this uh, circumstance, there's no overcoming it. Uh, it's as if uh, a bridge just got burned and there's no going back that uh, because we responded the wrong way to the initial strife. Anyway, it's uh, really an ugly verse and, and why we want to be on guard against these things. Let's start, though, with the tapukos. Let's start with the perversions and understand perversions for what they are. And uh, the first use of uh, tapukos is in Deuteronomy 32.30. So Deuteronomy 32. And uh, yeah, everywhere the Scripture warns us against these perversions, we, uh, I think we realize how, uh, how smart God is to warn us in this way. All right. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 20. Is what I'm headed for. And uh, this is in the Song of Moses at the end of his life, and he's getting ready to die, and the, the Exodus generation's already died. The wilderness generation has now grown up, and they're getting ready to enter into the land. The last two living saints that were over 20 when they walked through the Red Sea are Caleb and Joshua, and now Moses is getting ready to die. And so this is the context as he's presenting this as he's presenting this uh, information. And when you look at the blessings of Israel, for example, uh, in verse 15, when Jeshurun grew fat and kicked, uh, we see that Israel under blessing is, is going to be a problem because they're not going to pass the prosperity test. And it says, He forsook God who made him and scorned the rock of his salvation. They made him jealous with strange gods, with abominations that provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods whom they have not known, new gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. You ever heard that expression, Johnny come lately? I, I think of that every time I read this verse because these are uh, Johnny come lately false gods. These are, uh, these are fallen angels posing you know, they're created beings, they're fallen angels, they had a genesis, they had a beginning, and yes, they're powerful, yes, they're mightier than humans, and God may even view them as, they are referenced as Elohim or Beneha Elohim, gods or sons of gods, but they're new gods who have come lately, they're not the eternal I am, they're not Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel, there is only one I am. And so these, uh, when you fall away from the faith, what are you doing? You're paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. When you're not serving the Lord God, you are serving Satan by default. That's the nature of this fallen world. So sacrificing to demons who were not God. Verse 18, you neglected the rock who begot you and forgot the God who gave you birth. And so the Lord saw this and spurned them because of the provocation of his son's and daughters, the wrath of God upon his own children. Uh, judgment begins with the house of the Lord. That uh, unbeliever, God has very low expectations or no expectations for the unbeliever. It's what they do. 
They're children of darkness. Of course they walk according to the course of this world. That's what they do. But a believer, someone that's born again, someone that should be walking in the light, when you reject the Lord God, His jealousy comes to bear and you will come under the Father's discipline. That's the way that it goes. And so uh, because of the provocation of his sons and daughters, then he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end shall be, for they are a tapukoth. They are a perverse generation, sons in whom is no faithfulness. And so really, as the first use of tapukoth all through the scriptures, this really grabs our attention because we notice the um, the group uh, the group think. We notice the collective nature of this. We notice the, um, the, the, the circumstances where perverts like company, right? Think of it like, you know, misery loves company. Uh, you know, perverts like fellow perverts to join in the perversions. And the more that they can spread those perversions, the better. And so much so that they can actually characterize a generation where a generation now is so characterized by these perversions, it's, it's, you know, it's noteworthy, right? What is it that the 1960s are known for in, in the United States of America? Okay, you know, not you, of course. I'm sure you were the exception to the rule. And, uh, you know, I asked my parents, I said, you were college age in the 1960s, you know, high school and college and, <clears throat> you know, and I'm not sure I believe, well, I do, I believe what they told me, but they were, my mom was so naive, she got to, <laughs> she didn't know who the Beatles were. She got to college and the Beatles everywhere, and she said, she asked, uh, what are the Beatles? And that's, uh, her roommate couldn't believe that she had been under a rock somewhere, so cloistered in a nunnery or something. But anyway, I am illustrating something. I am illustrating the fact that a generation gets to be known for something. And a generation can be given over. Uh, think about the Exodus generation. God dealt with them as a generation. And they were given over. And then he you know, started to call the, the wilderness generation to bring in and become the conquest generation. He deals with generations. And so we don't want to be identified with the perversion generation. And yet here we are. We're in the day and age that doesn't even know, about, you know, that girls and boys anymore. And that if, if a girl wants to be a boy or thinks he's a boy, then a girl can be a boy and a boy can be a girl. And well, wait a minute, what is our nation uh, coming to? What is this generation coming to? Yeah, I believe it's coming to a Tapukoth generation, a generation of perversions where they're normalizing any, everything and anything. And if you think it's not possible for them to go too far, think again, because pedophilia is next on the list. And uh, it's, it's coming up. And it's going to be normalized. And it's going to be just another perversion that if you speak against it, you're a hater. See? And so there we have it. All right. They're already starting to uh, attack the American Psychological Association. They're putting the, their political pressure to bear. They want to get the next DSM adjusted to, to take pedophilia out of the list of mental illness. They're working it right now. So it is a perverted generation. And that's not good. And so um, when uh, the rest of this deals with jealousy and with a, a, findle, a kindled fire and, uh, and all of this, that's not good. All right. And then that's the one use outside of Proverbs. The rest of these are all within Proverbs. Proverbs 2, 
Proverbs 6, 8, 10, 16. So we've covered all of those. There's only one more remaining that's coming up that we've not reached yet is uh, Proverbs 23. So the first, most of these should be ones you recall from when, back when we were in these chapters. Proverbs 2.12, there's such a benefit for walking in the Word of God. Such a benefit to learning truth. And that's what all of Psalm 2 is about. Learn the Word of God, my son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you. Make your ear attentive to wisdom. Incline your heart to understanding. So you've got to be an eager student, ready to hear the next class, ready to hear the next class. If you seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. And so we want to have an active pursuit in our search for truth. We're eager and we're diligent about our studies. And if you're that kind of a disciple, then here are the practical benefits. As in verse 7, he is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice, preserving the way of his godly ones. All of those are benefits. And then there's internal benefits. So there's external benefits to your life. There's also internal benefits. Wisdom will enter your heart in verse 10. Isn't that great? Don't you want the Word of God in your heart? Don't you want His truth in your innermost being? Of course. Wisdom will enter your heart. Knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will guard you. Understanding will watch over you. And you have the Word of God that's in your soul that's benefiting you. Okay? And it's it's not like the old, you know, Bugs Bunny cartoons where the, the character's there and he's got a little red angel devil kind of thing, cartoon character with a pitchfork and the horns on this shoulder, right? And then he's got that little cherub angel on that shoulder and whispering this and whispering this, okay? You know the cartoons I'm talking about? I'm not the only one that watched those? Okay. Well, as cartoonish and silly as those are, there's actually a biblical sense in which it's not... In, in God's case, it's not a little cherub sitting on your shoulder. It's actually the Word of God itself within the, 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 within the, the, the depths of your soul. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. You've internalized it. You've taken it in. As, as it says, uh, with humility, receive the Word implanted that is able to save your soul. And so here it is, as wisdom enters your heart, knowledge is pleasant to your soul. These things are active. Discretion will guard you understanding will watch over you. This is the product of the Word of God living in you. And it comes alive. It's a beautiful thing of having, that's why you women are so blessed. You've had, if, you've had, if you're a mother, if you've had a child inside of you, then you've had uh, a living being inside of you. And it does things. It kicks you. It keeps you awake at night. It steps on your bladder. It usually does unpleasant things. Um, it gets the hiccups and then you can't sleep. Okay? Well, that's what the Word of God does. It'll keep you awake at night. It'll keep you thinking about things. It'll warn you about things. It'll goad your conscience when your pattern of life is at odds with what you know to be true. So that's a benefit. All right. So that's the, uh, the issue here. And so it says, to deliver you from the way of evil, from the man who speaks and this is our term, tapukoth, the man who speaks tapukoth. 
And you notice it becomes a lifestyle. If you start listening to the wrong things, you start doing the wrong things. You start running with the wrong people. As it mentions there in the plurality of, of um, the way of evil. Not just isolated actions, it's a lifestyle, it's a way, it's a road. From those who leave the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness. You know, Satan's favorite uh, minions are not the unbelievers. He has all those he wants. It's the believers that he can get out of the truth from the Word of God. If he can cause you to stop being a disciple, if he can lead you astray where you're not walking the, the paths of righteousness anymore, man, you're his favorite minions at that point. And so we uh, dealt with that back in chapter 2. So verse 12, verse 14 These guys, uh, they leave the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness who delight in doing evil and rejoice in the perversity of evil. They rejoice in the tapukoth of evil. Things that uh, that used to shame them, things they used to be embarrassed about, now they're celebrating them, now they're bragging about them, now they're, uh, well, having parades and everything else. All right devious in their ways, rejoicing in the perversity of evil. I say as long as you still have a conscience and as long as you still have guilt and as long as you still, like the Apostle Paul, say, you know, who will set me free from this body of death? I'm, I'm doing the things I don't want to do and I hate it. As long as you're still in that phase of hating it, that's good. All right, that's good. That means you've not been given over. That means you're not in the conscience-seared phase where you've got the hardness of heart and you're just celebrating now what you used to hate doing. That's an important principle too. All right, over to Proverbs 6. Our parallel text with, uh, with chapter 16. Because here in 12 through 15, we really have the, the same message we're getting this morning, and we had it back in chapter 6. A worthless person, a wicked man, one who walks with a perverse mouth, who winks with his eyes, who signals with his feet, who points with his fingers, who with perversity in his heart, with tapukoth in his heart. See, you're supposed to have the Word of God in your heart. Instead, these perversions are, are being internalized as well. Continually devises evil, who spreads strife. Therefore his calamity will come suddenly, instantly he'll be broken and there will be no healing. So that's 6.14. More perversions in chapter 8. 8.13 The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. See, some hate is sanctified. Some hate is righteous. And if you've got a different attitude, if you don't hate what God hates, there's something wrong. We're supposed to have God's attitude. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance in the evil way. And the perverted mouth I hate. The tapukoth mouth I hate. So God hates it and we don't, there's an issue there. And either God or us needs to change if we're going to reconcile. And it's not going to be God. God doesn't change. It needs to be us. We need to change. We need to adjust. The perverted mouth I hate. And yet we've got uh, Christian pastors now that are sanctioning sin. And God says he hates it. And that's, uh, again, I think it's descriptive of this perverted generation. Be delivered from this perverted generation. Chapter 10, verses 31 and 32. More perverts. And you notice 
The bulk of these are verbal. Have you noticed that? It's curious. I don't know that we think in those terms, but these perversions, uh, you know, uh, a lot of these are connected to the mouth or the tongue or the things that are said. The mouth of the righteous flows with wisdom, but the perverted tongue will be cut out. So do you want to be righteous and communicate the Word of God? Or are you going to listen to all that filth? Are you going to participate in all that filth? Are you yourself going to speak all that filth? The lips of the righteous bring forth what is acceptable, well-pleasing, acceptable. We looked at that in Hebrews on Sunday. By the mouth of the wicked, what is perverted. That's what it brings forth. Um, and all these are good. I mean, you can tell what's the state of the heart based upon what's coming out of the mouth. And uh, the, the treasure is exposed when it's brought forth. Chapter 16, of course, is where we are today. And then chapter 23. Proverbs 23.33. Your eyes will see strange things. Okay, so we've got to back up. This is what happens with drunkenness. And... Um, Verse 29, who has woe, who has sorrow, who has contentions, who has complaining, who has wounds without cause, who has redness of eyes? This guy is in a bad place, (laughs) okay? Because he's a drunk. He's a lifelong drunk. He's a perpetual alcoholic. Those who linger long over wine, who go to taste mixed wine, do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. You know, if you are so drunk that the little bubbles now are just fascinating to you, you know, I mean, that's, anyway, no one here, of course, knows what that's about, but I've seen movies, I've read books, and I'm not going to lie, I had some teenage years I'm not pleased with. All right, Um, but notice now, it goes down smoothly, it's fun when you're drinking it. A lot of times I'll catch up to you later. And um, especially the little fruity ones, they're sneaky. Fuzzy navels are sneaky. And then the next morning, the next morning, oh, you pay the price. So it goes down smoothly, but the last, it bites like a viper, like a serpent. It stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things. And the sober people next to you don't see it, but you see it. And uh, there it is. Your mind will utter perverse things. Let's face it, when you're under the influence, uh, you say things, you see things, you do things, your thinking is so impaired. That's why we're told, don't be drunk with wine, be filled with the Spirit. You want to be filled with the Spirit, and under that influence then, you can, uh, you know, you can do everything that that influences you to do in a good way. The Holy Spirit will have you um, doing marvelous things when you're under the Spirit's influence. Not speaking the perversions. All right, so that's, yeah. <laughs> All the way to the end of the chapter. They struck me, but I did not become ill. They beat me, but I did not know it. When shall I awake? I will seek another drink. <laughs> you know, you just drink yourself till you knock out, and then you wake up and start it all over again the next day. That is not what we want. All right, so those are all the tapuco fuses, all right? None of them are any good. They're all horrible. And 
But you'll also notice that they're all communal. They're always inviting others. They want to be in the crowd. They want to influence others to join with them. It's not accidental that tapukoth is plural. This is a man of perversions, plural. Perversities, plural. He then follows up his strife with malicious murmuring. Now it's curious too because what sparks the strife? What's the big strife with these perversions? You would think that um, that it would be a no-brainer. You would think that uh, I don't, you know we can use marriage, family, church, uh, anything. Let's just take church because uh, here we are, and and so we're we're learning the word of God, we're growing, and then now we've got uh, a perversion. Now we've got a tapuka. And that tapuka is multiplied, it becomes a tapuko, so we got plural perversions. And we, we have a, a brother, and he's involved in this. And he's thinking it, and he's speaking it, and he's doing it. So we have perversion in our flock. What do we do? Okay. Now, what, what this verse is talking about, let me get back to my text here, causing um, the perverse man spreads strife. Spreads strife. Now, if if a church is healthy, if our flock is healthy, and we're growing and we're humble and we're learning, a perverse man should not spread strife. What is there to argue about? Right? What's the argument? He's a pervert. Okay? There should be like-mindedness. No strife. There should be like-mindedness on the part of the non-perverts towards the pervert, whereby in that like-mindedness we can love him, we can correct him, we can uh, discipline him, we can encourage him, we can rescue him from those perversions, right? We can speak the truth in love. We don't regard him as an enemy, we admonish him as a brother. And, and, and we're supposed to, that's our function in the body of Christ. Why would, a, uh, why would perversion in a church, why would it cause strife? Well, we've got the example of First uh, Corinthians for that. We got the man of incest. That, that sparked strife. Why did it spark strife? <clears throat> the reason why it starts to, it sparked strife is because believers who should know better start to side with the pervert. And they start to make excuses for him. They start to validate him. They start to accept him or accept his perversion. That's where the strife hits, right? And so now all of a sudden, now there's there's strife sparked by this perversion, sparked by a crowd that's validating the perversion. And so now, now there's lines, a line in the sand. Now there's people are choosing size. Now there's, and thankfully, I mean, there's going to be faithful believers to say, uh, sleeping with your father's wife, that's not biblical, that's not right, that's not, even Gentiles don't do that, you know. If it's something that not even an unbeliever does, um, you know, Paul says, why are you tolerating this? And they were prideful about tolerating it. See? No. And so there's strife. I think the uh, the perverse man spreads strife, yes, but shouldn't. And then the follow-up to that. The murmurer, the whisperer, separates intimate friends. Because as soon as there's that strife, that's just the camel's nose under the tent, that's just the foot in the door, that's just the opening Satan needs. Ooh, there's strife here. I can work with that. Right? Ooh, there's strife here. I can work with that. 
you know, like a, a child that realizes that mom and dad aren't on the same page and the kid says, ha, I can play this off, right? I can work mom against dad, I can work dad against mom. Because that strife becomes the venue then where further mischief can be done. And so the slander can separate intimate friends. As soon as you identify that strife, then these murmurers know how to, uh, how to drive that wedge in deeper and, and make it really where it's irreparable. Make it where there's no, there's no recovery from that. So, malicious murmuring. Again, there's a single use in Deuteronomy that I find useful and then Psalms and then Proverbs related to this whisper campaign. Deuteronomy one twenty seven. As I mentioned, I, I'm not really thrilled with the idea of slander as a translation there in Proverbs, mostly because I think that term is very loaded. I think uh, the ha diabolos, the devil, is the slanderer. And I think we've got vocabulary that is much more suited for slander that's not this vocabulary. And this vocabulary speaks of murmuring. It's, it's used of, uh, of um, divination and witchcraft. It's used of spell casting. It's used of... Um, Actually, I think it's used of demon possession when the uh, demonic murmuring happens. It's not human speech, okay? It's the, it's the utterance of, of the demons. And so I, li- I like malicious murmuring better than slander. But that's just my preference as a translation. All right. This is why the Exodus generation doesn't get to go into the land because they murmured, they grumbled. You were not willing to go up but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. They, they traveled all the way to Kadesh Barnea, Barnea. They sent the spies in. The spies came back. They heard about the giants and it was game over for almost everybody. It was only Caleb and Joshua that stood faithful and said, God's giving us this land. You rebelled against the command of the Lord. You were not willing to go up. And that's always the excuse. We can't do it. No, you're not willing to do it. You can do it because God is, is empowering you. He's conquering this land. He's giving you this land. It's called grace. He's giving you this land. Don't say I can't when God said He was giving it to you. So every time this a believer cops out with I can't, you're calling God a liar because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And the whole promise is there. The issue is you're not willing. You're not willing to walk by faith. And you grumbled in your tents and said, because the Lord hates us, He has brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. And so you grumbled in your tents. That's the murmuring. That's the malicious murmuring. And you'll notice, uh, you know, it's not in the public square. It's not in the tabernacle. It's not in the presence of Moses in, in leadership. It's, it's in the, it's in the, uh, the, the tents. It's in the behind-the-scenes whisper campaigns. It's in the, the little networking things and uh, you know the little outside-of-church church meetings that happen when the, uh, the let's fire the pastor committee gets together to see how can, we, uh, how can we engineer his departure, that kind of a thing. Okay? Never happened in this flock, at least not that I know of, but I've seen it happen in other churches. All right. Anyway, that's uh, Deuteronomy one twenty seven, and so this is the consequence that they're not going to get the land, and God's going to have them die in the wilderness, and that's their consequence. All right, Psalm one hundred and six. Another walk through the Bible. 
How many walkthroughs are there? There's a lot in the Old Testament. It's a great pattern. Psalm 106 is another walk through the Bible. It's a review of God's dealings with Israel. Anyway, when you get down to verse 25, you have it here. They grumbled in their tents. This was, uh, so you've got the golden calf in verse 17. You've got the, um, yeah. He said to them, uh, verse 23, therefore he said to them he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Remember Moses stood there and said, Lord, you can't do this. You made eternal promises to this this, uh, obstinate people. They despised the pleasant land. They did not believe in his word. That's a great commentary on Deuteronomy 1. On the passage we just read, that commentary when he said you were not willing to go, they despised the pleasant land. All they saw was giants. They despised the pleasant land. They did not believe his word. He said he was giving them this land. They were not willing to go because they did not believe his word but grumbled in their tents. They did not listen to the voice of the Lord. Therefore he swore to them that he would cast them down in the wilderness. He swore to them. The book of Hebrews says he swore in his wrath, they shall not enter my rest. A redeemed people, a covenant nation under the judgment function of the justice of God. And so uh, that whispering in the tents, grumbling, murmuring in their tents... Proverbs 16, 18 is our pa- or 28, that's our passage today. It'll come back more. Come back again in Proverbs 18. Grumbling and murmuring. There's no place for that. If you've got something to say, say it. We should be speaking to one another in love. Speaking to one another, teaching one another psalms and hymns, spiritual songs. Not murmuring, not grumbling. Proverbs 18 and verse 8. The words of a whisperer are like dainty morsels. They go down into the innermost parts of the body. You know, carnal speech, there's a power to it. And the carnal ear wants to hear it. And, uh, you know, if someone's ready to give you this next tender morsel, this great tidbit, ooh, this juicy little thing, did you hear? And, And just ask yourself, why do I want to hear that? I don't want to hear that at all. I want to have the ready ear to hear the things of the Lord. I don't want to hear the malicious murmuring. I don't want to hear this carnal stuff. I don't want, I don't want because when I hear it, I can't unhear it. My, my mind, you know, I don't want to dwell on that. Don't even tell me. Don't even tell me. It goes down to the innermost parts of the body. It's not going to sit well when it gets there. So that's, uh, that's a warning. Uh, chapter 26. Again, the words of a whisperer are like dainty morsels. And they go down to the innermost parts of the body. Verse uh, 22, that was 20, 20, 20. For lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisperer, contention quiets down. Isn't that great? Just get rid of them. Tell them to quit it. Knock it off. I don't want to hear that. 
Either stop spreading those things or get out of here. And, and just let it die. Like, a, you know, if you're running out of firewood, you're running out of firewood. Don't go get more. See, that's the thing. If This is how it goes, like that telephone game. The little bit of juice, you know, and then the next person who tells it might add a component. The next person who tells it might add a component. A little more juice, a little more detail. By the time it's told the fourth or fifth time, man, you won't believe the, the nature of this narrative. It's like a, you know, soap opera. So quit adding to it. Why are you adding fuel to the fire? Why are you adding wood to the... Just, just stop putting wood on that thing and it'll smolder and go out and then won't even notice it anymore. It's done. So I like that in verse 20. Alright, so that's our second villain. Our first villain is the man of Belial. The second villain is the man of perver- perversities. The third villain is the man of violence. The man of violence. And uh, it's not a far step to go from uh, worthlessness, to, to go from belial to perversion to violence. Does it seem like each one of these is getting worse? Yes, they're not far off. They're not far off. And much of what this man of violence does is passes himself off as being good. The man of violence actually enjoys the ambush. He enjoys the deception. He enjoys, uh, um, you know, it's easier to inflict violence when they don't see it coming. Uh, you know, a lot of a lot of bullies are just cowards, and uh, so to inflict the violence, they gotta sneak up behind you and hit you from behind, or they gotta hit you when you're not expecting it. And I think we see that emphasized here in sixteen twenty nine. He entices his neighbor. Well, what's up with the enticement? You know, why bother? You know, it's a word for seduction. It's a word for deception. It's a word for misleading, you know. Uh, if you're a man of violence, you're going to rob them anyway, why not just go rob them? Just be upfront about it. Not how they operate. And it's interesting in, uh, in that. When, when, uh, when the Sanhedrin was so intent, why did they go at night to arrest him? Why did they try him at night when they were going to arrest Jesus? If, you're, if your cause is so righteous... Anyway, it's curious to me how many of these acts of violence are actually done in a deceptive way, employing enticements. All right, so here's Ish Hamas. Ish Hamas. And of all the Hebrew words, this is one you hear on the news a lot if you watch current events out of Israel. There is a terrorist group called Hamas. And it's a terrorist group that uh, really the anti-Israel left, the progressive left actually loves Hamas and hates Israel. And they think Hamas is righteous. They think Hamas is right in what they're doing, that Israel is the aggressor. Israel's the bad guy. Hamas, they're the, they're the freedom fighters just trying to deliver their people, those poor, mistreated Palestinians. And so they celebrate Hamas while they condemn Israel. They call good evil and evil good. And the Bible says, woe. We cannot curse Israel. Hamas is dedicated to the destruction of Israel. Anyway, Hamas speaks of violence. A man of violence. And uh, we're warned about it. Chapter 3, chapter 10. Of course, Genesis. In the days of Noah, the whole earth was full of Hamas. Genesis 6, verse 11 and verse 13. 
So let's look at some of these. Let's start with Proverbs. We're warned about it. We're warned about it. Don't join with them. Don't practice these things. Do not envy Ish Hamas, a man of violence. Do not choose any of his ways. For the devious are an abomination to the Lord, but he is intimate with the upright. And this is parental warning to a child to not be seduced by the wrong lifestyle, to not find value in, uh, in those things. You know, um, gangs are popular, especially when they're powerful. And hey, I'm, I'm with the right group. I'm with a powerful group. We're strong. No one picks on us. There's an attraction to that. And there's a benefit to that, particularly in a, in a lost generation where they don't have a normal family life anyway. They don't understand parents. They don't understand siblings. They don't understand a normal family life where there is nurture and love and acceptance. So they find it. Where do they find it? They find it with the street gangs. And they find nurture and acceptance, and if you want to call it nurture, they find, well, they find hoodlum criminal coaching. They find acceptance. They find belonging. They find that they fit in. And so violence, well, hey. And it just becomes normalized. It's what we do. It's how we take care of ourselves. You know. And they justify it. They validate it. There's a whole psychology behind the street gangs. Anyway, Proverbs warns against it. That, uh, but here too, notice that the man of violence in, from verse 31 is called devious in verse 32. Just like the enticement we're seeing this morning in Proverbs 16.29. So warned about it. And uh, don't envy it. Don't envy anything related to, uh, related to that. Uh, chapter 10. Blessings are on the head of the righteous, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Conceals violence. Again, it's deception. You're concealing the violence. The mouth of the wicked conceals violence. You might be saying pleasant words while you're uh, preparing to unleash at the the right moment. We discussed that back in chapter 10. I remember talking about the crown sitting on the head where everybody can see it. Verse 11, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. So there's this violence. Genesis 6, as we talked about with respect to Noah's flood. The whole earth was full of violence. And it's curious to me what this world was like because the Nephilim are being produced here, fallen angels are taking human women. And uh, it says in verse 2, the, the sons of God, those are fallen angels that took human women for wives. They took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Whomever they chose, however many they chose, whatever size harem you want, there you have it. And uh, what are the men doing? In, you know, Are they not protecting their women? What are they doing? And um, verse 5 says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Not even a stray random good thought of human good, right? There wasn't even human good to balance out the, uh, the evil. 
Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. When a society totally abandons any pretense of even human good, that's, uh, and, and this was around the world. So God was grieved at the course humanity had taken and takes a vow now to blot them out. And uh, except for Noah. Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless in his time. He walked with God. But the earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence. Think about these things. And as violent as our culture is, there's a defilement upon the land. It actually impacts the real estate. It is a spiritual pollution on the territory, on the land itself. We've studied that. Bloodshed, fornication, idolatry. Those things will defile the literal land. They will leave territory, real estate, defiled in God's sight. And this is as it was. And so he had to uh, destroy it. How much violence do we have on our streets? What's it like out there? And, uh, you know, when you realize... (laughs) In a fellow I was talking to yesterday, we were talking about when we were kids, how we would walk through the woods to go to school and no one ever thought about it, you know? Or uh, ride my bicycle to the library, ride alongside a highway, you know, never even thought about it. You know, how many kids today, you know, would get abducted or thrown in a van or whatever? Or, or how many parents today would let their kids ride a bicycle along the highway to get to the library? It's just a different parenting culture now because the times have grown darker. No question the times have grown darker. No question that violence has increased. And there is a consequence to be paid for that. There is a, uh, a divine judgment upon the land where such a thing is, uh, is prevalent. Isaiah 53, 9. Let's look at our Savior. Isaiah 53. Got a Jewish friend. I don't think he even knows Isaiah 53 is in his Bible. <laughs> you know? Isaiah 53. These are the chapters that never come up in their synagogue services. They never come up in the lectionary readings. They never come up in the, in the, uh, in the classes. They're just not dealt with. Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. This is the birth of our Savior. And described by Isaiah 700 years ahead of time. A tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. So the land itself is in trouble. But here comes the root. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. (laughs) Okay? He would not do well in modern politics. As he's not, uh, you know, not uh, impressive to look at with the eye. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their face. You know, the kind of guy you're looking at and you just look away. Ooh, I don't want to look at that. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried. Now let's, let's think of this in a couple of different ways. If you were here on Sunday... You learn something significant from the book of Hebrews. Normally when we read this, we talk about how he was the substitute accepting the sins of Adam in our place. And that's a good way to take it. But there's additional substitution as well. 
So surely our griefs He Himself bore and our sorrows He carried, yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. And so yes, all the sins of Adamic humanity were laid on Him and it was dealt with that. Okay? He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. By His scourging we are healed. The substitutionary Lamb of God accepted the wrath and so we get saved. Isn't that beautiful? All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Salvation is a personal issue. Each of us. It says all of us, each of us. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. So your sins were placed on Jesus Christ. Then um, I want to make sure I don't overlook what I'm dealing with here so that I... uh, I'm headed for verse 9. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Now notice, this gets a little bit different now. As for his generation, now we're dealing about generations. We're not talking about every unbeliever going back to Adam. We're not talking about every unbeliever going forward to the great white throne. We're not talking about the sins of Adamic humanity. We're talking about His generation. Actually, we're talking about His kind. His kind. Who were His kind? Israel, the Jews. His kind. Okay? As for His generation, His kind, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. This is a people group. This is a national transgression. This is not about Adam's original sin. This is not about Adamic sins. This is not about, this is something different. This is the corporate transgression of Israel. This is a covenant nation, a redeemed covenant nation that is standing in a broken relationship with their Mosaic Covenant. They're in trouble. As for this, his generation who considered he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. To whom the stroke was due. Okay. So the wages of sin is death. We get that. But the consequences of a covenant nation in in violation of Mosaic law, the stroke was due. Okay? The stroke was due. So he accepted that also. His grave was assigned with a wicked man. He was with a rich man in his death. Because he had done no violence. Here's our term, Hamas. He had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Violence and deceit. Remember? Satan was a liar from the beginning. He was a murderer from the beginning. Violence and deceit. So the Lord was pleased to crush him. Putting him to grief. Now is this the same? Is this the same as the substitutionary atonement for Adam's original sin? Is this the same as substitutionary work of Christ on the cross to to save Adamic humanity? Or is this different? And I'm going to be out of time here, but on Sunday, 
on Sunday, I tried to draw with this thing, and I had a dead battery in my stylus. Okay? Jesus never had a dead battery in his stylus. But I did. But what I was trying to draw was, not that, what I was trying to draw was this. All right. And this is, I'm glad we got here this morning because I wasn't able to draw that. Everything on the left side of, of this we're great with, right? The fact that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. The fact that in Adam all die. The fact that through one man sin entered in the world and death through sin. Therefore all died because all sin, right? That's our positional truth in Adam. And so what happens? The wages of sin is death. And so we have a substitute. We have a substitute. What we have is a second Adam, the last Adam who comes. And he redeems us from the consequences of the first Adam. All right? And that's just a 30-second, you know all that anyway. This, this, this we're great with, okay? This we're great with. But now, take it to the right side of the column. And here's where we really have to wrap our minds around this. Because it's, analog- it's an analogous situation. It's, it's analogous, it's an analogy that, that we have now not sin, but the law. Okay? And, and the law was mediated by Moses. And Israel is now in violation of the law. They are in a broken covenant relationship. The nation is in a broken covenant relationship. And so their only consequence now is the curse. Right? The wages of sin is death. But the consequences of breaking Mosaic law is the curse. They recited all the curses even before they entered the land. So they are a nation that is cursed. What's their answer? What's their provision? Well, a substitute, a second Moses. God said, I will send a prophet like unto Moses. Moses actually said, a prophet like Moses, like me, will come. And what's he going to do? He's going to accept the curse. He actually became a curse. This is the whole doctrine of Galatians, that where he became a curse to redeem us from the curse of the law. All right? And all too often... I think the things get conflated. They get conflated as if there's only one side of the paper, not two sides of the paper with a line down the middle. All right? So start to think, if you will, just jot this down and chew on it. You've got two weeks to chew on it because I won't be here next week. Right? No Proverbs class next week. You've got two weeks to think about it. But the analogy, right? So we're all sinners in Adam. The wages of sin is death. He accepted that death. As, as the substitute, identifying with us, identifying with all of Adamic humanity, the second Adam, we're great with all of that. The same work, the same event, different work, the same event while he's on the cross, he was also identifying not just as the second Adam, but as the prophet like unto Moses. And he was accepting the curse. See, as, as we read in, in Hebrews 9.15, a death has taken place A death has taken place for the transgressions, not the sins, for the transgressions of the first covenant. And I apologize for keeping you three minutes long, but for this reason he is a mediator of a new covenant. 
We're not talking about why He's the Savior of mankind. We're talking about why He's the mediator of the new covenant. He's the mediator of the new covenant since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions, not sins, the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And so this is uh, this side of the ledger over here. He's the substitute. He, his death has become, he became that curse. He's removing that curse. God doesn't have to curse Israel anymore because he cursed Christ. And now he can give them a new covenant without violating or compromising the Mosaic covenant. Okay? So chew on that. Give a couple weeks, chew on it, and we'll uh, come back. Thank you, Father, for this day. Thank you for this truth. Thank you for opening our eyes to the uh, perversions, the, the worthlessness, the perversions, the violence. And uh, one more villain to go, Father, and then we wrap up the chapter. So just thank you for all your truth. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.